Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Let them think they're enjoying themselves. Let them think they're going to get a bit of freedom. Then tug on that choke chain and make them realise that we're still in charge. Are we ever going to get out of this lockdown? Are we ever going to be in a post-Covid age? Locking up the biscuit tins is very different to locking up people. Will your head grow so big you won't be able to get into the rocket? That's my worry. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Well, she did it, Planet Normal citizens. Co-pilot Pearson (laughs) positioned e-medicine and total triage in her rhetorical crosshairs, (laughs) fired her word-spitting ray gun, and kapow, the mighty medical establishment was tamed. Last week, former NHS Trust chairman Nick Stokes appeared on Planet Normal his beloved wife Joy having died because in Nick's view she couldn't get a face-to-face GP appointment quick enough and her cancer recurrence became inoperable. Alison's been championing Nick's cause and for months Planet Normal's been railing against the move towards fewer and fewer in-person consultations by some GPs and some GPs we should stress because others are going way above and beyond the call of Hippocratic duty. And as Gunnar Pearson kept firing, last Thursday, official NHS guidance was changed. Plans to use more online and telephone screening for GP appointments have been scrapped. Hooray! Hooray! With everyone now having the right to see their doctor face-to-face. Bullseye. We can be served inside pubs and restaurants, Alison. Lockdowns easing ahead of, we hope, full release on the 21st of June. But meanwhile, there's confusion. Confusion over foreign holidays... Confusion over what will happen on the summer solstice. We discuss all that, but first, co-pilot, what of this most welcome NHS U-turn? Well, it's very generous of you, co-pilot Halligan, <laughs> to attribute this miraculous change yeah. in NHS England policy. But I'd like to say, well done, Planet Normal listeners. Well done. Telegraph readers, what a wonderful victory for common sense and decency. As you say, Liam, after our campaign, spearheaded by Nick Stokes' moving and powerful testimony about what happened to his wife, Joy, NHS England did indeed announce that it was altering its guidelines and GPs should now offer patients face-to-face appointments. Let, let's emphasise that should, Liam, because I think there's a bit of foot dragging going on, but but we'll be, you know, we'll be obviously be referring to that later. So we got kind of people power going, didn't we? And then there was a, a really excellent front page Telegraph scoop by Laura Donnelly and Rosa Silverman, which confirmed... Chapeau to them. Chapeau. Chapeau to them, absolutely. It confirmed our worst suspicions, which was indeed that GPs had been told to discourage patient appointments in person to promote digital consultations and you know Liam, you know we get to do different things in our jobs I, you inform us with your economics knowledge I hope that I add to the gaiety of nations with you know some of my storytelling but it's very special in journalism when you add to the good in the world and I I do hope that this change and I hope that GPs do indeed start seeing more patients face to face because as many doctors and nurses wrote to us it's dangerous to not see patients face to face and if it saves a few people who wouldn't have been picked up on the phone or these dreadful e-contact forms then you know I just feel it's it's made it very worthwhile and that bigger point we made last week as well Liam about this contactless world which is increasingly foisted on us by bureaucracy people don't want it we don't want it we hate the alienating measures 
which rob our society of the personal touch, which we absolutely treasure. And I was really made angry. You know what made me most angry? I was flicking through this NHS document and it referred to patients as footfall. The footfall through the surgery. And you thought, they're not footfall, mate. You have they're footfall through and- a safari park. You have footfall through Debenhams, or at least you used mm. to before all the Debenhams closed mm. down. Mm. Yeah, and that's not a way to refer to men and women who are in pain and who are in need of reassurance. I think, you know, going forward, I hope that Planet Normal will continue with this because we also heard from many, many GPs who were saying that, the you know, the ship of general practice is sinking, there aren't enough of them, they haven't got enough time to see people. You know, we've allowed an enormous amount of immigration into our country, Liam, and for good, as we know, for much for good, but also has put huge pressure on these public services. There aren't enough GPs, Many of the over 50s cohort who are an incredibly dedicated lot, they're about to retire. What's going to happen? But anyway, look, hooray, hooray for, hooray for everybody for making this, I think, really special change, which will hopefully improve the quality of millions of lives. Indeed. Well done to you. Well done to Planet Normal and well done to The Telegraph, who back everything that we do and our fellow journalists on The Telegraph for really pushing for this change. I think just we should have a qualification here and I deliberately wrote this into the intro which you just heard. We're driven in this journalism by the letters and emails we've received, many, many, many of them from NHS workers, GPs, surgeons, nurses, uh, administrators. Of course, some GPs are going to take umbrage at what we've been saying. We're not trying to privatise the NHS. We're not questioning for one second the sanctity of free at the point of use. What we are saying is reflecting the correspondence we have from people on the front line. We don't wish to denigrate all GPs by any means. Many, many, many of them are going way above and beyond, as we said at the outset. But we can't not criticise a vital public service when increasingly the people involved in providing that public service, to say nothing of many, many, many members of the public, not least Nick Stokes, are saying with the best will in the world, with the best will in the world, we're not assuming bad faith, but there are problems. Perhaps we need to organise this differently. Perhaps it needs more resource, a combination of those two things. But we can't turn a blind eye to a situation where in the eyes of many, many expert people, as well as general members of the public, lives are under threat because we aren't organising ourselves properly. I agree with that, Liam, but we have also had from GPs themselves, uh, one GP wrote to us, said, it really is a pitiful mess and needs some straight-talking courage from medical leaders and politicians. And, of course, the NHS you know, uh, as as religions declined in, in this country, the NHS has become the national religion. It is a sacred cow and it has become ever more sanctified during the pandemic where, of course, we've seen, you know, frontline workers putting their lives on the line. And my concern, having read all these emails, thousands of emails, I should say, is that this status protects the NHS against much needed reform. Now, we do need more GPs. I think we were promised 6,000 more GPs yonks ago, and they've never materialised. The telemedicine, which we've criticised, is obviously really helpful for things like repeat prescriptions. I think we need to go further, Liam, and I and I think that we need to perhaps look at introducing a small charge for, for GP appointments, obviously with the exemptions for the old and the young and the less well-off, but there are an enormous number of people who are desperately needy of GP time. And then there are people who are time wasters who lots of GPs have said are, you know, practically asking them, you know, how do you plant geraniums or, you know, you know, where should I take my dog for a walk? I mean, so I think that there's no point insisting on this talismanic NHS promise free at the point of use if you haven't got enough doctors with enough time to take care of the patients properly. And I have looked at systems in other countries 
They've got part state-funded, part insurance-based schemes, and they work very, very well. I mean, you know, doctors um, profit from having more patients, unlike over here, where, where, where the patients too often are seen as a burden. And my fear, Liam, is that if we shy away from having an honest national conversation about primary care, we're going to end up causing more suffering in the name of, of honouring an ideal. I think that's right. I mean, the idea of a small charge, £10 or something, to vi- when you visit your GP is, is mainly there in order to make sure you turn up for your appointment and you don't waste GP's time. And of course, vulnerable groups and children will be completely exempt. The danger is that those charges then escalate. We wouldn't want to see that. But even very respectable, well-established uh, health think tanks like the King's Fund in London have explored this idea. And I think the importance of what you've been doing in recent weeks and Planet Normal's been doing for months, Alison, is we're trying to uh, move away from uh, a situation where post-lockdown, our reliance on e-medicine and and total triage and so on um, doesn't become the default. Because we were hearing, weren't we, quite quite disturbing paragraphs in speeches by your favourite bloke, Matt Hancock, the health secretary. We mustn't, we mustn't give up the advances we've made in telemedicine and so on. Uh, and we had you know, the Royal Society for General Practitioners coming out and saying, no, that must not become the default. And the way the guidance changed last Thursday, largely, I would say, as a result of your, your journalism and, and the Telegraph's campaigning more generally, uh, we're not going to have everyone screened uh, online uh, through a Zoom call before they get to see a GP face to face. That notion has now hopefully gone and gone for good. Yes, and while you rightly pay tribute to those who have, you know, the GPs who did keep going, we've we've heard from many many listeners who've talked about, you know, GPs who won't even answer the phone. All this, you know, the the hellish catch twenty two loop of where. You fill in the e-consult form and then that tells you to ring for an appointment and then you ring for an appointment and it tells you to fill in the form. And, you know, these measures, I think, I'm sorry to say, deliberately designed to put people off. And this awful phrase, another phrase I absolutely hate, called total triage, you can just see the young management consultant who came up with total triage, can't you, Liam? Watch too many Tom Cruise films. And uh, yeah, he's on a jet. He's on a jet ski in Portugal right now, <laughs> given really? what the state pay, paid him consultancy <laughs> fee to come up with that. And look, we've discussed, haven't we, on this podcast, the sort of fire-breathing receptionist that your local, yeah. We're not assuming bad faith. It's a really hard job when you're a receptionist. You're probably even not medically trained and you're trying to sort of triage people when the time in front of the GP is so limited. A lot of this does come back to a shortage of doctors, as you've said. So let's train more doctors. How many kids are there each year that dream of studying medicine at school? They've got near perfect grades and they don't get to study medicine. Let them study medicine. Yeah. You know, they might have got 10 A stars rather than 12 at GCSE. It doesn't matter. They've got D of E gold and they want to be doctors. Let them be doctors. Yeah, and I think that we had a, a brilliant email actually from a GP who I think had been an engineer and become a GP. And he said, let more practical people with slightly less good grades become doctors because you absolutely, you know, you, you don't need the, the 12 A stars. Or actually, it's not that now. Is it nines that they get now, yeah, really? And we're, 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 yeah. we're revealing, yeah, we're revealing our we're revealing our age by saying A star. But I think that's right. I think encouraging more young people into these caring, caring jobs and giving them the time to care. You know, I mean, literally not saying you've got three minutes and you're only allowed one symptom per visit. Um, That's right. But I think I think this is, you know, I hope this is the start of something, not the end. I mean, it has been, a, as I said, a lovely victory for common sense. And unlike the lack of common sense we're seeing elsewhere on the national stage, co-pilot, Indeed. May the 17th has come and gone. 14 million of us went, as Mickey Flanagan, the stand-up comic, would say, out, out on Monday. We had pints. We joined together with friends and relatives in restaurants. And what a fabulous moment it was. Of course, the weather in most of the country was awful. What a May we're having. 
in terms of uh, uh, you know, rain and it was snowing recently. Sleet, Remember, you sleet, were getting yes. sleeting. The real issue now, though, is what's going to happen on June the 21st. We said a few episodes ago on Planet Normal, it could be a Midsummer Night's nightmare rather than a dream. And with the Indian variant, there's a growing sense that the government may not allow full lockdown release on the summer solstice. And there's even talk of the government reining in the extra freedoms mm. that we've already been awarded. Oh, I'm so cross about this. You know you know me when I go off on one, don't you? I mean... <laughs> brace, brace. <laughs> brace, brace, rocket. You know, I mean... What is this pattern we see? How we look back fondly, co-pilot, to the South African and the Brazilian variant, <laughs> which were all going to be much more transmissible and kill everybody. And, and they've, they've now gone, haven't they? And we've got the Indian variant, which has popped up conveniently a couple of days before, you know, the, the, some of the restrictions are lifted. And this is the pattern we see the whole time. You know, you're just about to feel a bit more happy, excited. Some of the scared people start making a few tentative plans. And then, oh, no, the Indian variant is going to kind of come and come and kill us all. And it's absolutely ludicrous. I mean, you know, the data, Liam, as you, what did you say last week? I love the phrase nonsense on stilts. The number of COVID patients in English hospitals is now 740 out of around 105,000 general and acute beds. And that's still going down, Liam, by 14% every week. And 37 million people have had at least one dose of the vaccine and 20 million are fully protected. Yet we hear that Boris has put off a planned speech next week, which would have announced an end to social distancing, which, as we know, you talked about pubs and restaurants being open, but they're still socially distanced, Liam, and they can't break even. So they absolutely have to have the social distancing lifted to be viable businesses. He was also going to remove the fines for people not wearing masks. But suddenly, yes, once again, absolute bombshell, you know, attack of the killer scariant, um, you know. And this is what happens. They say, you know, oh, this dreadful thing's going to happen. Don't be complacent. We have all of the sage doom and gloom professors all over the airwaves spreading these absolutely outrageous did you i mean have you even heard some of these figures they're coming out with you know thousands are going to be admitted to hospital in july you know with yeah, more COVID. than last year even though we're <laughs> largely vaccinated the politics is getting much more acute isn't it andrew lloyd webber you know tory pierce mm. surely one of the sort of most cuddly members of our establishment you know rightly lauded for his world-class uh, mu musical stage productions He's been saying that those people who are refusing to take a vaccine, they're akin to people who drink and drive in terms of the danger they expose their fellow citizens to. I think that's actually pretty harsh language from him. A lot of people don't want to take the vaccine for religious reasons or, or, or whatever. Um, but I think what's interesting now, um, yes, you're railing against the government, and I think there's a lot of merit in that, but I do feel a sense that as some of the sage scientists, you know, press more and for more and more um, uh, caution as we approach the 21st of June, I do get a sense that the Prime Minister, at least, is pushing back to some degree. I think he does feel increasingly that if you can't allow more freedom in the middle of summer, when we've got a world-class vaccination program, are we ever going to get out of this lockdown? Are we ever going to be in a post-COVID age? And I think some numbers that you've got from George back that up. Can you just tell us quickly who George is, Liam? Indeed. So George, as we say, whenever we refer to George's data, senior source within NHS England, he or she, we don't reveal uh, George's identity, has full access to the internal data. We don't disclose who he or she is because of their job security, but we're confident of the authenticity of George's statistics, uh, and that's why you report them, Alison, but we can't independently verify them uh, because George gives them to us, by definition, before they're published. I was inspired to go back to George this week, Liam, because Matt Hancock told MPs in the House of Commons 
that in uh, Bolton and Blackburn, the majority of people hospitalised with this Indian variant um, had been offered a jab but had not taken it up. So that sounded quite worrying. And uh, I got in touch with George on yours and my behalf. And George replied immediately, I thought George was gearing up for a well-earned sabbatical, exclamation mark. (laughs) No, you don't get away that easily, our insider. So it was brilliant. So George went off and dug down into this vast majority of people in Bolton and Blackburn hospitals, as referred to by the Secretary of State for Health, um, And George found out that there were 24 patients currently in Bolton General Hospital with COVID and seven of those are in ITU. George says the number has been increasing, but very gradually by one patient every few days. Blackburn Hospital has got eight COVID patients altogether, which has been the average number every day for the last month. Uh, There are two COVID patients in Blackburn in the ITU and there's been no change in those figures since the 18th of April. And George says it's really difficult to identify any of the causes for concern that SAGE talks about at all at the moment. So Bolton has 551 patients in its hospital altogether. Just 24 of those have got COVID and there are 139 empty beds. And it's a similar promising picture in Blackburn. And and Liam, honestly, we are being told by the Secretary of State for Health This picture of these northern towns, you'd swear to listen to him, wouldn't you? That they're in the middle of this dreadful crisis. And this is part of the psychological campaign against the British people, which is denting the confidence of people. I I don't know if you saw, there was an astonishing study which said that one in 10 British people... Um, want lockdown to continue indefinitely. I don't know if anyone's explained to them, but people have to work in order to to pay for lockdown. But this is awful. We've never had the COVID recovery figures in this country. We're one of the only countries in the world which hasn't published its COVID recovery figures. And coming back to that, um, this whole new scariant, as we call it, As we're recording this, we've just seen Professor Neil Ferguson today admitting that maybe the Indian variant isn't as transmissible as we thought. So this is the pattern. Let them think they're enjoying themselves. Let them think they're going to get a bit of freedom. Then tug on that choke chain and make them realise that we're still in charge. I absolutely hate it. I cannot believe our country is is being governed by like this and there is no justification for any further curtailment of our freedoms beyond June the 21st, which is supposed to be Freedom Day and as far as I'm concerned is going to be Freedom Day. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at the Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! Last week, we interviewed Nick Stokes, of course, soon after the tragic death of his beloved wife, Joy, surely one of our most important Planet Normal interviews ever. Right up there, in fact, with our interview with Robert Styler. And if you weren't listening back then and you don't know who Robert Styler is, do check out our Planet Normal archive. This week, I'd say another landmark interview. Laura Dodsworth is an author and filmmaker. She's just published her latest book, State of Fear, an investigation into the tactics used by SAGE, and in particular the so-called behavioural scientists on that committee, to frighten the public during this COVID pandemic. The minutes show that officials felt the public needed to be frightened so they'd comply with lockdown because, quotes, a substantial number of people do not feel sufficiently personally threatened. Ministers were advised to increase, quotes, the perceived level of personal threat 
with hard-hitting emotional messaging. I started my conversation with Laura Dodsworth by stating that with the Prime Minister having just confirmed the upcoming public inquiry into the official response to COVID, her book could hardly be more timely. Yeah, well, it's it's timely now. It didn't feel timely when I started it. So last summer, I really felt like the big story we were living through wasn't just an epidemic. It wasn't just COVID. The story was about fear because there was this astonishing document that was released from Spy B Minutes saying that people's sense of personal threat had to That's be... That's the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Group on Behaviour. These are the behavioural scientists who work inside Whitehall and advise sage and ministers, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Good good for spelling it out. It's um, so shorthanded in my head now. But they advise that people basically weren't frightened enough, that people were too complacent because the risk of death was too low in their age group. So we have this... This quite extraordinary admission that the government has tried to frighten us to make people follow the rules during lockdown. And that, for me, was the real story. Now, the journalistic heart of your book, as well as some extremely moving interviews with members of the public, you've also talked to many scientists on SPIB, that committee that advises SAGE, the behavioural scientists. You've talked to some of them on the record, some of them off the record, You've got spyby scientists describing psychology as, quotes a weapon. You've got many incredible quotes, I think, from spyby scientists talking about authoritarianism, even totalitarianism. These are pretty strong words. Yeah, I know. It really, it really does blow the lid off it. Now, of course, these are the spyby advisors who were receptive. These are the ones who responded to me. The others didn't. They might say something completely different, but they didn't, they didn't fave me with interviews. Some of them have got some very deep-seated concerns about what they've been doing. Now, there's, I don't think they always, um, they're not always um, in consensus and they don't always work on the same projects. But while everybody was frightened at the time and, you know, when, when the epidemic first started, and that will have also included politicians and, and journalists and the scientific advisors. Over time, some of these scientific advisors have become really uncomfortable with using fear to elevate our sense of threat and to control people. And one of them says, you know, he wakes up at 3am. It's the thing that wakes him up at 3am. And another scientific advisor who works very, you know, deeply embedded in Whitehall said that they've been stunned by the weaponization of fear. I fervently hope this book is actually going to inspire a much needed conversation about the use of fear, not just in the epidemic, but about the way we're using behavioural psychology overall, because it's not just that there's a genie out the bottle, it's like we've unleashed a hydra, and you know, you can keep chopping its head off, but they keep employing more of these behavioural scientists throughout different government departments. It's very much how the government now does business. It's the business of fear. I don't get a sense from your book that you're denying that COVID is a problem, you're denying that it's as much of a problem, I think, as the government has said. And I don't think you're trying to say that there isn't some merit, at least, in the vaccination programme. But I guess what your concern is, is that now we've been using fear for the last year, that the government will continue to use fear to kind of um, psychologically guide the public Uh, in other areas of public policy outside of a pandemic. Is that right? So, no, I do not deny that COVID is a disease caused by the virus SARS-CoV-2. I don't deny it's made people ill and kill people. I don't deny it's been a serious pandemic. Not at all. I stay completely away from the vaccine. I've got no idea about all all of that. Yeah, I don't deny we've got a very successful vaccination programme underway. And I would have thought that by now we should be crying freedom, um, a la Matt Hancock. No, the book is very much about the behavioural psychology approach. And I've got a number of fears about the use of fear. First of all, fear is slowing recovery down. Basically, the British population were manipulated through a highly successful campaign of fear into staying indoors. The reason that the SPIB advisors advised this is because it was a question that the government asked. They don't write papers for the fun of it. The government puts a question to them, they respond. So in the question, you you know that the government was worried that we just wouldn't do it, that we wouldn't stay inside our houses and put our relationships on hold, put all of our rights on hold, like worship, education, uh, relationships, freedom of movement, travel, and earning a living. So to do all that, they frightened us. 
But now we're frightened. How do we come back from it? Recovery isn't death dashboards. It isn't doom mongering 24-7 about variants, which let's face it can go on forever because there's hundreds of thousands of variants of viruses. Recovery is children playing in playgrounds, the birds singing and getting back on with life. But how do we do that when people are still anxious? Another problem with the use of fear is it's not ethical. Now, if this was an experiment in a psychology lab, we would have signed consent forms. Now, I didn't sign a consent form. This has not really been given full ethical consideration. Now, in the past, there have been calls to consult the public on the use of behavioural psychology, and those calls have come from the behavioural scientists themselves, and yet it hasn't happened. We haven't yet been consulted on the use of subconscious techniques which effectively strip away our choices. The weaponization of fear is a particularly destabilizing tactic because it clouds our judgment. That in turn then increases your reliance on the government. That in turn creates more fear. So you see you get into a kind of a self-perpetuating doom loop. The other problem with fear is it creates collateral damage. So, you know, we've tanked the economy People have lost their jobs, jobs and businesses have closed. But there's also some, some more kind of subtle um, impacts from the use of fear, such as uh, one in eight adults have developed moderate severe depression during lockdown. Um, I saw a report that one and a half million extra children will need support for depression and post-traumatic stress. So I think there are a lot of problems with the use of fear, but really fundamentally, I think it undermines democracy. Devil's advocate, though, Who's to say it wasn't necessary? Who's to say that without the use of psychological methods that you've so clearly um, exposed and are railing against in your book, A State of Fear, without those methods, we simply wouldn't have adhered to the rules and COVID would have spread much more widely and there would have been more deaths. What do you say to that? I think that's the debate that we need to have. And this is the problem. We haven't had the debate. We've never had the public consultation on the use of behavioural psychology. It was one thing when they were talking about how to make us the model citizens, you know, stop smoking, pay your taxes on time, eat less. But locking up the biscuit tins is very different to locking up people. (laughs) So I think that the ethical debate is absolutely needed. And those who want to advance an argument that there was a net benefit should be able to do so. And then in opposition, there should be people who argue that it's not acceptable to do so. We haven't had the debate. My my book makes a clarion call for the debate, for the consultation. I think it's ethically dubious at best. But there are also counterfactuals. There's uh, Sweden, which annoys everybody. Uh, But then there's also Texas and Florida and South Dakota. Now, they either didn't lock down or they've um, lifted their lockdowns. And yet the virus has still receded in the same way. Furthermore, in an epidemic, people will be frightened. Frightened. Um, epidemics are frightening. I think fear was an open door. The government didn't even need to open the door and say, after you. But what it did was knock it down with a battering ram. I think we could have been trusted to act in the spirit of survival and community spirit. What do you want to see happen in the upcoming public inquiry? I think that's why your book is so well-timed. Because as we come out of lockdown, there is still a sense of government being very, very cautious and warning us to be careful. The Prime Minister's just uh, confirmed that a public inquiry will happen, though it won't report for a couple of years, possibly until after the next election. But what do you want to see happen in that public inquiry? And what are your fears about what might be covered up, Laura, during that public inquiry? Well, first of all, I should just say, and it's going to sound really miserable, I'm afraid, but I've got no, I don't set any store by the inquiry whatsoever. Um, I think it's happening probably too soon. It's happening before um, we're going to really be experiencing the economic consequences. I think people are still too close to what's happened. I think the jury might still be out on empirical evidence. I, I don't really set much store by it. But I would like a separate inquiry into the use of behavioural psychology. This has been called for now for about a decade and we haven't had it. Um, I don't see any abating in the use of fear. And this this really worries me. Um, I mean, just I think it's just today in The Telegraph, actually, vaccine refusers are described as the principal threat to ending restrictions. 
this kind of language really worries me. It's nothing to do with how I feel about vaccines whatsoever. It's it's the language and the blame game going on here. It's a game of carrot and stick. That language others and dehumanises people. We're supposed to be scared to be on the wrong team. Who wants to be the principal threat that's keeping everyone on the naughty step? And I think that while they're still talking like that, right now, where all the vulnerable are vaccinated, we're coming into summer when um, respiratory viruses abate, and we should be looking forward with optimism to still be using those kind of tactics really worries me. So I think we need a separate inquiry, a separate independent inquiry with a historical review of how behavioural psychology is used with a specific focus on the weaponization of fear during the epidemic. And that should involve not just the behavioural scientists and um, psychologists, but also civil rights experts, lawyers and members of the public. You are, if I may say so, Laura, a, a very experienced author, journalist, film, filmmaker. Um, you're a keen observer of politics. How surprised are you that this use of fear that you've exposed uh, and chronicled in your book has happened under a prime minister who, for the most part, is, is, is a kind of liberal kind of person? Boris Johnson... We wouldn't have suggested he likes the idea of a large state, would we? We would have thought he'd be a small state prime minister. We, th- we would have thought he would have been a live and let live kind of prime minister based on not just his scribblings and newspaper columns and so on, but his actual record in office, not least as London mayor. So how surprised have you been that this has happened under Boris Johnson, this use of fear? Well, mixed, really mixed, actually. I mean, like everybody, last March, I was scared. I was a bit scared of the epidemic, but I was very scared about the authoritarian streak. Very scared that for the first time ever, we were saying that not just sick people, but completely healthy people must stay indoors and stop working. I mean, I was shocked. So this book's been a real journey for me. And I've learned a lot about propaganda, the use of behavioural psychology and the leveraging of fear. So I was surprised, but in another sense, I'm not. Libertarians quite like Ludge. They, they like it because it avoids the state having to legally mandate. Um, so, for instance, uh, the government's saying, oh, they're not going to mandate COVID passports, but they won't stop businesses doing it. Well, it ends up um, getting you into the same, same place. The left like Nudge because they don't really seem to trust people to make the right decisions. So I'm not too surprised. And after we have to remember, you know, Dominic Cummings said at um, an event called Nudge Stock a couple of years ago that the future is behavioural psychology and data analytics. Just look at how elections have been won most recently. As an economist, you know, I, I'll concur with you, this science of nudge, so-called behavioural economics, not act- actually forcing people to do things, but just making them feel it's in their own best interest to do them, short of mandating them. It is popular on both the left and the right. You know, you've got nudge economists winning Nobel Prizes these days. It is a big part of public policymaking around the world, particularly in the US uh, and the UK. But when we look back on this epidemic and we look at the use of behavioural nudge, if you like, economics, what do you think future historians will say? Oh, I don't know. I don't know where it's going to go. What I hope they'll say was, oh, we went too far. We didn't trust people. We took their choices away from them. That wasn't ethical. That's what I hope they'll say in the future. Um, Because I really do truly believe that this approach undermines democracy. We shouldn't be stripping away people's choices without them even being aware it's happening. I think that's I think it's not fair play. I think the British people deserve better. I think we do deserve trust to make the right choices. And essentially, they should be our choices to make. Um, There seems to be quite a move around the world to not just use fear, but also to consider people's happiness and well-being. And that, you know, that sounds nice. That sounds really benign, but it still makes our feelings, our personal feelings, the province of the state. I think it's I think it's quite dangerous. 
In terms of fear, we have to think, how do we want to envisage society? How do you want the world to look? Do you want scary ads everywhere you go to make people follow rules? I saw a poster in Bromley Park that said COVID-19 is in this park and it is more transmissible than ever. I mean, that's really not what you want outside a children's playground. So do we want personal accountability or do we want the tiny details in our lives to be managed and to be subconsciously influenced during fear, using fear? It's just not my, it's not my imagining of the ideal future. And I think ultimately people don't want to be manipulated. People don't enjoy being hoodwinked and they don't want to live in a state of fear. This is not a fun way to live. My final question to you, Laura, I must say, um, reading your book, you don't come across to me as a subversive person. Your book is extremely uh, methodological. It's very much based uh, on the interviews that you've conducted, the facts that you've gathered. Um, you come across to me as somebody who is, you know, who loves their country and wants Britain to be a, a, a better place. But what have you learned about the UK Laura, during this pandemic and while writing this book? Mm. Well, thank you. I'm really glad that that's the impression you draw when you read it, because I do love our country. I'm proudly patriotic, love being English and British. And I think British people are great and we should take more pride in ourselves. Um, and I really like people. And that's why my approach to all my work is very based in an in interview. So... It is, a, it is a factual and methodical book. It contains facts. It contains information from peer-reviewed studies. I've interviewed academics. There's also first-person testimony from people who were undone by fear. But when I break the fourth wall and I talk to you, the reader, and I theorise and I speculate, I make it very clear that's me doing it. And of course, that's my right when I'm interpreting people's evidence and, and their testimony. But what I've learned is that we're a little bit too biddable. I think that we want to be quiet and to be good and to do the right thing. And it's very difficult to stand out and be different. Um, the herd mentality has been really encouraged through the use of behavioural psychology. So, for instance, the kind of narrative of heroes and covidiots. You know, what team do you want to be on? Do you want to do the right thing and have social responsibility or do you want to be labelled a, a COVIDian and a granny killer? And it's not easy going against the grain. I'd say that a few of my friendships got onto shaky ground near the beginning when I was speaking out and I've worried how it might affect my work. But I thought that the the correct thing to do is to follow my, my journalistic nose and go about it in a methodical way and hopefully contribute to to a change um like i said my big concern is the use of fear and and the behavioral economic aspect but i think partly as a nation we maybe need to be a bit a bit bolder about standing up more quickly when something is not right when it's a bit off speaking up for the underdog laura dodsworth thanks a lot for visiting planet normal oh thank you very much for having me and state of fear by laura dodsworth published by Pinter and Martin, is out now. Alison, these fear tactics, they've backfired, haven't they? Well, I guess if you were the people implementing them, Liam, you'd think they've been a, an absolute rip-roaring success. It, it's interesting that um, Laura's book is already, you know, is sold out. And I'm not surprised because I think that, you know, people are hungry to hear more about what's been done to us. And I thought it was fascinating, Liam, your interview. I mean, Something that struck me is people have asked, what became of the British people that we knew, that doughty, worst things have happened at sea mentality that's seen us through so much in our history? And we now know, thanks to Laura and other people, what became of the British people is they have been subject to a vast psychological experiment by the scientists on Spy B, who have used mind games to control people. And of course, it has been a massive success because British people are the most fearful in the world. We're the most likely to overestimate the COVID mortality rate. We're the most likely to be scared to go back to the office. And we are most likely to lack a good grasp of relative risks. And we know why that is, Liam, don't we? Because during the pandemic, right back at the beginning, I remember turning on Channel 4 and there was an advert with young people in it and it said, all age groups are equally at risk 
That was a lie. This virus does not discriminate, but of course it discriminates. We knew by, you know, March or April 2020 that it discriminates with older people, unfortunately, much, much more likely to die of COVID. So why was the government putting out messages that says this virus does not discriminate? Do you think that... Do you think that this spy B, the slightly, slightly secretive group, do you think that they were just the nudge unit or whatever? Were they just given their heads and told, do your worst, we want people to be compliant? Hands up, I can see the case early on in the pandemic for, you know, perhaps some people were overly complacent and perhaps there was a place for, you know, for making people feel a bit more cautious. But it's the carrying on of that. And as Laura said, what we're seeing right now is fear is being used right at this moment to coerce people into having the vaccine. And my great terror, Liam, is that they're going to try on children now. How long before they start saying, oh, parents, you'd be very irresponsible, wouldn't you, to let little Sophie or little Josh not have the vaccine? You wouldn't want your child to be the unclean one in the classroom, would you? Are they going to do that? That would be profoundly unethical because children are at no risk from the virus. They will be at a, at a tiny risk from the vaccine, more risk from the vaccine to children than from the virus itself. That's not the same as we go up the age range and get to older people. But we're seeing this unchecked use of behavioural psychology. And I agree with Laura Dodsworth that we need a separate inquiry into what they've done to us. And I said in the column this week, we now need an equal campaign to tell people, actually, you haven't got the virus, you're really perfectly well, go outside, have a lovely time, let's rebuild our society. Where's the equal, powerful, moving campaign to defrighten people? That's what I want to know. And that's the sense in which I said, um, off the back of Laura's interview, that it's backfired, because there are parts of the population that are so frightened, you know, beyond the point of really understanding and rationally assessing the situation. And I don't judge those people who are, I would say, irrationally frightened. I feel sorry for them uh, because I think they've been, they have been misled and they have been hoodwinked in trying to respond to a very serious pandemic. We've never underestimated um, the notion that COVID is a killer on this podcast. What we have done, though, I think, since the middle of last year, is we've tried to take a proportionate response. We've tried to put the data that we're seeing in context. We've tried to drill down and get data that the public isn't being exposed to, in which the broadcast media mainly has not been uh, elucidating and, and, and transmitting to the broader public. But I think we have now reached a point where the, uh, the general population is going to be angry if it feels, and I think there is a sense, and it's being picked up by Laura Dodsworth's book, that it's been manipulated in an unreasonable way. When you've got members of Spy B themselves, behavioural scientists themselves, saying that the tactics being used were dystopian and totalitarian, you know that this has gone too far. I think a lot of this comes from politicians wanting to be sure that when the public inquiry happens that they are not to blame for any deaths and that has led to a situation where they are willing to believe pretty much the most uh, um, downbeat and pessimistic assessment of any scientist because to push back against that if it's minuted if it's an official meeting they could then be blamed going forward. What we need now to get us out of this spiral of fear that Laura Dodsworth has outlined for us, um, we need leadership, we need political leadership, we need to, if you like, with, in the most responsible way that we can, we need to start risking unlocking this economy, unlocking this society so we can live. You cannot have human life without risk. We cannot live in a risk-free world where there is no disease. We have to learn to live with risk rather than frightening ourselves into eternal lockdown. 
Now on to our listener emails, a selection of the wonderful, insightful, often very funny and occasionally heartbreaking messages which you send each week to me and Liam at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming in. We've obviously had thousands uh, about the topic of being able to see a GP. And this is from a doctor, Dr. Michael. My own practice has gone full tilt down the e-consultation route. The obstacles put in front of patients are intolerable. It is bad enough for those of us who are computer literate, informed and, yes, pushy. The average patient has no chance and many will just give up. I write as an experienced hospital consultant and also as a former GP of eight years. Diagnosis is not like a computer game. It's vital to be able to take a proper history and examine the patient. I would suggest that you cannot adequately examine a patient via a computer link. Those that believe this is the way of the future are deluding themselves. GPs seem to argue that face-to-face consultations are unsafe and unnecessary. This is wrong. As a frontline hospital consultant, I have closely examined and cared for dozens of critically ill COVID patients. If protective protocols are followed, there is minimal risk involved. I do not accept that GPs cannot adopt the same protocols and see patients face to face. The current arrangements are a disservice to patients. I'm sure there have been large numbers of late and missed diagnoses resulting in unnecessary suffering and death. NHS negligence claims will go through the roof. There needs to be an urgent review of how GP services are being run before these misguided new ways of working become the norm. A strong email there from Michael. And this is from John in Stoke-on-Trent. That's it. I've had it, writes John. From the dreadmongers of SAGE with their appallingly inaccurate, doom-laden models to Boris and his ridiculous brain fart when he opined that it was lockdown, not vaccinations, that had brought the figures down. I wonder who fed him that load of verbal garbage. His more recent promise to be led by data rather than dates was for me the last straw. Come the 21st of June, I'll be taking back personal responsibility for all my actions, irrespective of whatever rules are retained in place by a government totally devoid of any fortitude. I'll bin my remaining masks, and if challenged anywhere in public, I should give a two-word response, the second of which will be off. (laughs) Well, that's from John. We should say that here at Planet Normal... Alison and I, we don't encourage law-breaking of any kind, of course. No, we do not. And whether we agree personally with rules or not, they should obviously be observed. Having said that, it's a free country. I think John's frustration is widely shared, and I think he's entitled to have his say. And that's why we've read out his email. I've told you, co-pilot, and I I often think of the words, the two words, the second one of which is off, um, but I'm not wearing a mask <laughs> after June the 21st. And um, if there are any places that require me to do so, I won't be going, I won't be going into them. That's, that's going to be my freedom day. That's right. Uh, that's th- right. This is a um, lovely one from Lucy. Regarding the increasingly mad scaremongering by Sage, has anyone spotted the remarkable similarity with Professor John I.Q. Nerdlebaum Frink Jr., a recurring character in The Simpsons? Professor Frink is a nerdy... (laughs) (laughs) Professor Frink is a nerdy scientist. Spider pig does whatever a spider pig does. (laughs) Here we go. Professor Professor Frink is a nerdy scientist, somewhat crazy and socially inept. He often uses his bizarre theories to aid the town during major crises, but only makes things much worse. That's marvellous, Lucy. Yeah, I think we can think of a few people in public life spouting off on the airwaves who are like that. And this is another funny one, Liam, from Coltergeist. Can we get a poll going on the origin of the country of the next round of scaremongering, which we can expect to start around June the 11th, maybe Japan. What what what, what variant do you think we're going to have, Liam? The Isle of... No, we've had the Isle of Wight variant, haven't we? What are we going to have? Nicaragua oh, variant. The Antarctican variant. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> this is from Richard. Congratulations on your campaign allowing many patients to express through you their quiet desperation. I hope you'll continue and that access to GPs and primary care will feature as a vital part of the COVID public inquiry. I've worked in NHS primary care for over 20 years, says Richard. Latterly, as an independent advisor working with the RCGP, 
it's the Royal College of General Practitioners and other organizations providing support to failing GP practices, promoting training and focusing on improved systems. Primary care has changed radically over that period and the systems once effective then are now no longer fit for purpose. As some of your correspondence suggests, there are examples of compromised patient safety which should be addressed by the Care Quality Commission and patients and their carers should not feel shy about whistleblowing. In my experience, says Richard, the average GP surgery has spent too little time trying to understand the varying needs of patients, too little time in assessing the skills needed to manage patients' needs, and almost no time understanding the benefits of and tiger traps associated with new technology. It's instead the average GP surgery, says Richard, tried to carry on as normal, seemingly blissfully unaware of the almost inevitable result of this failure to adapt to changing circumstances and changing needs. A radical overhaul is necessary, and I suspect competing interests are lining up artillery as we speak, desperate to be seen as promoting change, brackets, in others, while determined to maintain their own status quo. Someone has to help us all rail against this sanctification of our, our NHS, which prevents any criticism being levelled at a system which is clearly failing. Thanks for your email, Richard. Strong words, some will agree. Others will be offended and will disagree by what you've written. Write in, tell us what you think at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Finally, from me, here's a review on Apple Podcasts from Jane. I wouldn't have survived the last year without Planet Normal, Jane writes. Alison and Liam have become like friends to me and I suspect many others. They balance insightfulness with gentleness, that's me, outrage with humanity and generosity. It's a rare talent, especially as they grapple with cutting issues of the day. Love them to bits. That's me again, of course. <laughs> this is from Henry. I've only just discovered Planet Normal, but have enjoyed listening to all the back episodes. At last, people who question the way this pandemic's been handled, music to my ears. I've been feeling like the whole world has gone mad, accepting everything without question. And this podcast really gives me hope. It's lovely to get positive feedback, yeah. Henry. Thank you for you, that. You, you think all the positive feedback's for you, don't you, Halligan? I know you. <laughs> <laughs> Do leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Planet Normal. It helps others to find us so the Planet Normal family can grow. Alison, you were saying? Yeah, just a couple of short ones to finish, if I may be so bold. <laughs> this is from Michael. Life took an unexpected... The whole intro was about you. Crikey. <laughs> I know. With, with, with your word-spitting ray gun. With my word-spitting ray gun. We all know you're in rehearsal for GB, being an anchor on GB News. My worry is, will your head grow so big you won't be able to get into the rocket? That's my worry. But let me... Let... I don't like... the uh, Anchor Anchor to describe... Yeah, that's an American word, anchors. You can't really use that word in, in England. It's... Uh, you can't really use that word. Yeah. We could do with some great anchors. We were talking earlier, weren't we? I think I, think I can see Halligan as being the, the Reginald Bosonquet to no jour with, with, with a few gins before he goes on, on the telly. Can I just end, can I just end with uh, um, a couple of good, lovely emails? One from Michael. Life took an unexpected step towards normal in America this week when the CDC revoked the mask mandate recommendation for the entire country. Suddenly, we can ditch the masks in most situations. But when I check the Telegraph website, it says that Boris Johnson is considering delaying open yet again. Please help me understand how one of the most vaccinated countries in the world, the UK, is considering delaying reopening while America is getting rid of masks and resuming life. Well, that's a very, very good question, Michael. <laughs> so that's it from Planet Normal for another week. As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views, Email of the week is my call, and I'd say it's the first email this week from Dr. Michael. So send us, Michael, your postal address. The Planet Normal mug will be winging its way towards you. Of course, you're going to have to hide it at home, stick it at the back <laughs> of the, the cupboard, <laughs> so none of, none of your mates at the hospital see that you are an avid Planet Normal listener and correspondent. 
Liam and I will be responding as normal to your comments on the Telegraph website on Thursday morning, the day this podcast is released between 11am and 12 noon, by which time we'll have been told more countries that we're not allowed to go to, possibly even including our own. And we'll put the link to that article in the description notes to this episode, or just go to www.telegraph.co.uk and look for the article labelled Planet Normal. And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal, the madness of planet Earth comes back into view. Thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitt, and our editor, Theodora Leloudis. Stay safe and stay in touch with us and with each other. Alison will keep her word-spitting ray gun primed. <laughs> and until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.